Hi, everybody. Before we start uh, this week with our guests, Diana Artirian and Robin Koss-Lewis, we wanted to let you know that we recorded this show about a month ago, uh, and that was after Robin's book, Voyage of the Sable Venus, was shortlisted for the National Book Award. And that's why you'll hear us refer to the book as being on the shortlist only. But you may know that as of November 18th, 2015, it was announced that Robin Koss-Lewis won the 2015 National Book Award for Poetry. So congratulations, Robin. Yeah, congrats, Robin. Let's, uh, let's get to the show. So let's get to the show. Episode 33. Welcome to The People on K-Chunny, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Our guests today are Diana Arterian and Robin Koss-Lewis. Diana Arterian is a poetry editor at Noemi Press and a managing editor and founding member at the small press Ricochet. Her chapbook Death Centos came out from Ugly Duckling Press in 2013. She'll be talking to us about some of her new work, a collection centered around the historical figure of Agrippina the Younger. At the time, I thought, you know, I'm going to write this book about poems that happen in, or rather moments that happen in 30 seconds or less on which important things turn, I guess, and then maybe playing with the elasticity of time. Robin Koss-Lewis is a provost fellow in the Creative Writing and Literature PhD program at University of Southern California. A Cave Canem fellow, she received her MFA from New York University's Creative Writing program, where she was a Goldwater fellow in poetry. Her first book, Voyage of the Sable Venus from Knopf, won the 2015 National Book Award in Poetry. And I didn't want to offer the reader a chance to romanticize uh, blackness. On the other hand, I very much felt it was important to have representations of black joy and black love. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, magically repaired. You can listen to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 p.m. Or you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. We're also on Stitcher and SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash insertblanc. And that SoundCloud page also features additional recordings from various readings and performances, which you very well might enjoy. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. To find out more, go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. Diana Arterian and Robin Cost-Lewis, welcome to The People. Yeah, welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, so Robin and I were talking a little bit about her incredible first book, uh, Voyage of the Sable Venus, and just kind of how myth plays into it and how it also plays into my work. Um, And myth in kind of the more obvious ways like gods and goddesses but also um kind of the myths that haunt us um in terms of identity um so i don't know robin can you talk about that a little bit we haven't really been able to talk sure, about. sure i'd book. love to you mean the latter part about myths that haunt us other kinds of myths other than gods yeah I well for first thing i would say it's very insightful of you i think that race is a myth that haunts us and i tried very hard to interrogate race theologically Mm. and philosophically. Um, Some people, like Toy Derricotte in her amazing book, The Black Notebooks, talks about race as a pathology. Mm. And I think there's some truth to that, without doubt. But I also think it's a mythology in that, A, it does not exist. 
um, biologically, but it certainly exists and functions um, in very heinous ways and also very lovely ways, uh, socially and historically. And I, I think that what I wanted to try to find in these poems was a way to discuss the line where those all that blurs. You know, it's not real, but it's meta-real. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think one of... One of the amazing things about this book is that it kind of, it basically is an idea of what identity is. So you have the myths, uh, what the, what haunts us, right? So in this case, you have the incredible um, titular section uh, that's conceptual in nature where you mm-hmm. just are interrogating different um, black female bodies and art mm-hmm. from antiquity upward. And um, so that feels in a way like a haunting myth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, the kind of more lyrical, uh, personal experiences. And those to me kind of felt like the combination of which is what kind of forms an identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Can you talk about that? I mean, how yeah, did you put this I mean, together? the other thing I wanted to say too, um, is I also think that gender is a myth, right? And all kinds of identities are myths that we in- invest and imbibe so much meaning um, into, but if we unpack them and then we unpack them well and over time, um, and especially if we go beyond the few centuries that our country has been um, here, supposedly, mm-hmm. um, we can find the roots of so many of these ideals, but they're ni- nightmarish ideals, I think, limited ideals. They go back for millennia. I mean, mm-hmm. they go back longer than that. Um, so I just wanted to add that too, that I don't think it's just race. I think there's a lot of things, you know, Virginia Woolf was one of the first people to say, you know, maybe there are more than two genders, maybe there are more than three, Right. you know, and I, I I would hope that we could go a little bit deeper into those things. Um, and you wanted me to talk about how the book is organized or about the differences between the middle poem, which deals primarily with art and the myth of art and then, or... Well, one thing that was interesting to me is that the Voyage of the Sable Venus poems, the middle section, ostensibly could be its own book, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. um, just in terms of page count. Absolutely. And so I guess I'm curious about what your um, ideas were about just putting it together as a book with the lyrical poems uh, alongside. Sure. And, and maybe as a part of that, you could, for people who don't know the book or are going to know the book, um, like just quickly outline those parameters that like those formal parameters that you created. Certainly. So the title poem, Voyage of the Sable Venus, is about a, I don't know, about a 50 to 70 page catalog of titles from Western art from 38,000 BC to the present. Um, Where and in any way a black female figure um, was represented um, in the artwork. What I did not uh, anticipate is that the the definition for art would have to expand greatly because I could not imagine the ways in which black female figures were used. So, for example, I would be in a museum or online at an exhibition or in an archive, and I would come across, say, a tripod of a basin that the legs of the tripod were made completely of black women's bodies, Mm -hmm. usually contorted in some kind of um, position of servitude or um, a clock that was made out of a bust of a black female figure. And when you pulled her right ear, her eyeball receded, and then the hour would 
um, rise up <laughs> the right eyeball and the same with the left earring. These kinds of things, regardless of how sick I know the world to be, the world is always sicker. Hmm. Or I should say human beings constantly shocked me in their desire to represent their hatred so preciously and so beautifully. Hmm. Um, and so what began as I thought was going to be a two to three page poem because of all the research, I mean, I couldn't stop. Once right. I started, and the more I dug up, it was like, okay, so what did they do at this time period in this country? Or what did they do? And no matter where I went, it was there. And that was just tremendously shocking. So it became a whole book. You're right. right. It did begin as a whole book. Now, before this, and all along throughout this research project, I had been writing poems. Um... And so my editor, I should say, first of all, this is the second time someone's asked me about the organization of the book in the last few days, and I think it's a very good question. I would like to take credit for it. I had nothing to do with it. Mm. It is all my brilliant editor, Deb Garrison at Knopf, Senior Poetry Editor at Knopf's, doing. I could not believe it. So she first read Voyage of a Sable Venus, the title poem, and um, was quite taken with it. And then... Um, I have an essay called Boarding the Voyage. That's a craft essay, and we were going to put mm. that with it at mm. first. And then we realized it took away from the title poem itself, so we pulled it. Mm. And then we came. We decided to insert the prologue. Um, but then she was like, "Do you have any other poems that you know might you might like to include?" Mm -hmm. And I said, "Sure, I can send you some stuff if you want to read." We were, we were already on our way to uh, production. And oh so I sent her a sheaf of poems, and she was just so taken with them. And she wrote me, I don't remember the chronology, but I remember at some point she was like, I really love that poem, Plantation. Mm. And I was like, what are you saying? Are you saying Plantation and Voyage of the Sable Venus can be in the same book? Yeah. And she said yes, and I was over the moon. I mean, I would never, this says a lot about kind of internalized racism, internalized misogyny, mm. all the shame I felt, mm. all the limitations I put on myself, all the self all the self-censorship. I could never imagine that A, any of this <laughs> any of this work would see the light of day, not to mention that they would see the light of day holding hands. I could mm. not imagine it, not in a million years. And thank God Deb Garrison could imagine it. And so she put these poems together pretty much this way. And I went back and forth with her about a few things, and it blew my mind that, you know, I was t I'm still terrified that Plantation opens this book. You mm. know, it's a poem that I feel like my psyche asked me to write in a certain way, darkly mm -hmm. and sickly and without apology. And I did not want to write this poem at all. And yet there the lines were just coming out of me. Um, so to have it be my first poem in the book, to open it, was daring in a way on Deb Garrison's part that I would never have been. That's so remarkable. I mean, I feel like those kind of um, relationships with editors are oh. so rare now. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. And I love how it opens with Plantation and, and closes with Felicite. That was also Deb's idea, which floored me, you know, because the first, and this is the thing, the first, uh, so the book is a triptych, and the first chapter are poems that I think deal directly with, you know, the kind of nightmare of the myth of race and gender and desire, how it gets all um, interrupted 
Hmm. by history Hmm. or how desire I suppose is deeply historical and then the the third section are more um, autobiographical poems that deal a lot with growing up here in Los Angeles and Compton and Carson um, and what that felt like it was a tremendously dangerous time to be a black child in the 60s and 70s in LA I was constantly we were we were shot out very, so regularly that I barely flinch when I see a gun now. It's very sad. My first boyfriend or the first boy I had a major crush on was killed by the um, by gang violence. And I mean, like we played we played hopscotch with LAPD shells because they shot at us so regularly for sport, for fun. And this is at this point we're living. I mean, you know, people like to kind of um, make Compton into this place that is. Um, uh, the site of incredible violence. I have never experienced violence in Compton, never, not once growing mm. up there. I know it takes place, but I grew up in a Compton that was like, leave it to Beaver, only Negro, right? I mean, everybody, the men who were janitors, the men who were post office workers, whatever, they came home from, and their work clothes and changed into suits and ties. And then we all walked down Central Avenue in chiffon and patent leather. Mm-hmm. So, I have a real resistance to the kind of representation of Compton that is taking place right now because that's not the Compton I know. People had farms. It was gorgeous. We had fresh eggs and there were cows and palm trees. and I mean, it was gorgeous. It yeah. was gorgeous. No, and I really love that. You have a particular poem where you kind of talk about that, which was so remarkable to which me. Which one, Frame? Yes, it yeah, was Frame, frame yeah. where you talk really specifically about your childhood and it totally broke apart that stereotype um, yeah. that is, you know, that all of us know at this point. Yeah. Um, but so the third section to, I'm sorry, I'm being verbose, but the third section um, were those kinds of poems. And I absolutely positively do not want them in there. And I just had to sit in my uncomfortability and mm. think about what my editor, Deb, was seeing. And I knew that she was seeing something that I didn't want to show. I knew it wasn't about that she was wrong. I mean, she has an eye. I wish for everyone to have Deb Garrison as their editor. She has the eye of, like, a hawk. Yeah. Um, well, so why I, did you not want to show that? Th- that's a right. Good question. And that's what I had to ask myself. What's wrong with you? And ironically, those poems in the, in the latter section, the third section, are the poems that are the most anthologized. So I mm. knew... I knew it was my kind of, um, my uncomfortability was that kind of historical shame and uncomfortableness that I had to think about. So with Frame, for example, I thought it was um, that kind of coming of age poem that is uh, that fetishizes its naivete. Hmm. I didn't want that Got at it. all. Um, or with other poems, it was just, I, I'm, I, I'm learning, especially since the book is doing so well, and since it since it's come out, that I really don't feel comfortable with attention, and I didn't know that. Well, I didn't that's know. too bad because we should mention that this book has been shortlisted for the National Book Award. <laughs> in case anyone doesn't know, oh, it feels like a very speaking of myth. It feels like a very funny and cruel joke of the gods no. right now. Like it's like you know, we got you <laughs> finally. We that's have a good way you. to get got. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm honored. I'm deeply honored, but um, I'm very aware of how com- uncomfortable I feel uh, talking about myself personally and especially about my childhood because on the one hand, it's very private, duh. But on the other hand, I, I, was, I feel that sometimes uh, those kinds of projects can get very gimmicky 
And I didn't mm. want to offer the reader a chance to romanticize uh, blackness and black childhoods in uh, the 60s and 70s. Yeah. I, I, di- I so did not want that. On the other hand, I very much felt it was important to have representations of black joy mm. and black love because I grew up a very happy child because I have parents who are crazy in the best way. Mm-hmm. They're fun. They, my dad, since passed away, he was hysterically funny, which blew my mind um, existentially because there's no reason why this man should have should have had an ounce of joy left in his body. Mm. He was born in 1923. He was drafted for the war. He grew up in New Orleans, World War II. He grew up in New Orleans when um, lynching was at an all-time high. Uh, the New Orleans Police Department was notorious for killing people. You know, I mean, you just, he was great migration. He came back from the war. He came to Los Angeles where, you know, it wasn't that much better. It was better, but not that much better. So, I mean, but at the same time, he was so full of joy. And my mother, too, and my whole entire family, I have hundreds of relatives. Hello, all you Cos, Piku, Tomas, <laughs> Colin Bell people out there. Um, we, I come from a very joyful family. And I, and, and I think my culture is also very joyful and playful. And I think that we need to talk more about joy and pleasure as a mechanism for survival, particularly mm. of political atrocities. Mm. You know, a lot of people do talk about it, but rarely do we talk about it within the African diaspora. Mm. Um, and it just, it's a magical way to survive um, such darkness. And so anyway, that's the third section. And I, so I had to let it stand, even though I felt uncomfortable. It's that moment where you realize your work is very separate from you. Hmm. You know, there's another poem in the third section about incest where I was like, I definitely wanted it in there. And then as we got closer to production, I was like, no yeah. way, no way. But then I thought about all the feminist work, not just feminist Um, but mostly feminist work I've read about sexual abuse, about rape, about sexual harassment, all kinds of different ways in which we we kill each other's psyches, and Mm. especially adults uh, do that to children. And I thought about all the work I read as a young writer and as a young reader in my teens and my 20s, how how they gave me so much, and I felt like I had to do this if only as a way to repay a certain debt. You're listening to The People on Kechung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. When you're there, please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review the show. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. To find out more, go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. Now, before we return to our conversation with Diana Arterian and Robin Koss-Lewis, we're going to hear Robin read a poem from her book, Voyage of the Sable Venus. So I'm going to read a poem titled Red All Over, and it's the title's taken from a joke, what's black and white and red all over from our childhood. And of course, it's a play on the newspaper, the punchlines of the newspaper. And my parents both read the newspapers um, religiously in bed every night when I was a child. Both of them had a paper each. But my father liked to tell it because it was also a play on race. Um, and red as in the act of reading became red as in the act of blood and violence. So this is red all over, and I'm reading it because of the conversation we've been having about personal myths and historical myths kind of intersecting in the same place. Red all over. The politics of frogs. The must of butterflies. Elegies of cotton. The whiteness 
of flies. Interruptions by snails, a lie's guarantee, the hope of succotash, a chorus of hominy, permission of the persimmon, observations by the spine, the pincushion's reassurance, the propaganda of a line, cackling from the Bible, orations by the dog, the mirror-steady rifle, the fig tree scarlet log, Anne's and their derision, lending library in the eyes, patois agnosticism, the tongue's chainmail of wise, lady calling from the ocean, invisible man on the moon, Lindy hopping dead upon the ceiling in the living room, girl asleep in the avocado, the minstrelsy of the floor, bickering birds of paradise, picketing the fickle front door. The one thing that I wanted to say that I didn't say is that it's a list poem um, about, a list poem of riddles, but what began as fun shortly transformed into um, commentary or political and historical commentary. Um, but I wanted to uh, keep it in rhymed quatrains because I wanted to have the kind of seductive and um, playful quality of a nursery rhyme mm. while it got deeper and deeper into history and politics. Yeah, I think that that's a pretty... It's interesting because some of these I'm, I'm, I don't know as, as riddles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of curious, what's your favorite riddle among them? Oh, let's see. Um, so they're not riddles like well-known riddles, but some of them are. So for example, you know, of course, so it's a play on all these different things. So you talk about frogs in a barrel, crabs in the barrel. So the politics of frogs, um, elegies of cotton, not a riddle, but you know, that Mm -hmm. considering cotton's role played in the, in the, in slavery and, Mm -hmm kind of the textile industry that, you know, to extend the grief of colonialism into the actual plant itself, I thought was, right. might be interesting. Um, a chorus of hominy is just a play on harmony, mm-hmm. but in this case, hominy, because again, the role that this grain has played in the history of colonialism. Permission of the Persimmon, it's a, a play on, um, you know, first of all, you switch around the consonants in those words, but also uh, we grew up knowing that you couldn't eat a persimmon until it was ripe, mm-hmm. otherwise it would tie your tongue, so you had to wait for the persimmon to tell you. Mm-hmm. But it also felt like, again, the natural world um, growing more and more um, okay, of course, I know I've anthropomorphized a lot in here, but no. animated. Um, but then there, there's sicker, there's sicker myths I'm referring to. So there's a horrible expression. I won't use the N word, but it's um, let's just say Negroes and flies, like right. Mm-hmm. And I thought I've always thought as a child, a that's a horrible expression, but also b that's not correct. What's really a nuisance is whiteness. And so in this case, I changed it to the whiteness of flies. And any mm-hmm black person of a certain age will recognize that and hopefully crack up laughing and also say that's exactly right you know like it's 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 the ideas of whiteness that buzz around us and Mm -hmm. don't let us alone Mm -hmm. it's actually not blackness Mm -hmm. um and you know we can go on and on but or the fig tree scarlet log like that's a play of course on the bible Mm -hmm. right um yeah so it seems like you've made these kind of lyrical pearls of lines um 
and created your own kind of you're playing on your own personal myths and then the myths that um pursued you as a kid in one way or another right and um but I like how you were saying that they're also riddles Mm -hmm. at the same time as myths which is actually super interesting Mm -hmm. to me well I also feel like I mean I feel this is true in most cultures right that wordplay and riddles Mm. are one of the most universal qualities that human beings share right pourquoi stories I love them you know and so it was also a play on, on that genre as well. You know, what's going on really. And how, I mean, this is, this actually, um, so there's a backstory to this poem. I was, I came to poetry after or during a very, very serious illness where I wasn't allowed to read or write mm. um, because it made me very sick. I um, had some neurological illnesses. And so this poem was the first poem. They told me I could write a line a day. Oh, man. And I could read a line a day. Now, telling that to a literature professor and a writer, they didn't realize what that meant, um, what that would mean. And so after a very deep depression, I thought, okay, then, I will make it the best line ever. Mm-hmm. And I would sit in bed. I, I wasn't walking much at the time, and I would sit in bed and think all day long, how can and how can I make the best line ever? And it was also a way that somehow um, circumvented brain injury. Like, Hmm. this kind of thinking um, does not make me symptomatic, which is crazy. But prose, linearity does. Metaphor does not. I have a fantastic neurologist, and she, we talk all the time, and she told me once. Wait, for real? For real. (laughs) And she told me, I know, that's what I said. The first time she told me, you know nouns and verbs take place in different parts of the brain. Hmm. I was like, what are you talking about? I know. I know. So this, I have to explore this more. I actually, the most, one of, there, there are a few readings I'm doing in my tour, and one of the ones I'm most excited about is I'm doing a reading at Harvard uh, Med School where my neurologist is, Alice Flaherty, the most amazing neurologist ever, um, to talk about the relationship between brain injury. She works with creativity and neurology, and I'm going to talk about um, my relationship between brain injury and poetry and, um, I, and I'm going to be speaking to mostly neurologists and I'm really excited about it because I don't think we of course we don't think enough about traumatic brain injury right. um, and the ways in which people cope for me the way I coped was to start writing poetry and because metaphor did not make me symptomatic it was this door right. that allowed me to um, leave trauma and also enter my work again Right. It's not okay. So that's one part, but it's also not that deep. People are like, "Wow, that's incredible," and it is. But it's also that the lines are shorter on the page. Right. Right. So I used to be really a heavy continental philosophy person, and I read a lot of dense stuff. Hannah Arendt is one of my favorite people, and I would try to read a, a page of Hannah, and after a paragraph, I would be sick and sleep for three days. Oh my God. Because of such dense material. So I'm not saying that poetry, I do believe deeply that poetry is as dense. I just think that poets work differently to reach that density. And um, I learned how to do that by the restrictions that my doctors placed on me. And so this poem read all over was the first poem I wrote after brain injury. It's science. Right, it is. And so, and so, you know, it gave me something to do, like almost all the poems, I think it's 12 syllables or 13 syllables have, Mm -hmm. you know, it just, it gave me something to do. I couldn't physically move. I couldn't really think that much. Mm -hmm. So I would sit in bed and just kind of, you know, count syllables. (laughs) 
<laughs> and think about ways in which metaphor could tell the same story, could be a novel. How, right. how can a poem be a whole novel? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's, I th- feel like it's something we haven't really talked about, about how you came to poetry. I know that you've been writing poetry mm-hmm. for a long time, mm-hmm. but, you know, how you went from being a scholar in Sanskrit <laughs> to uh, becoming a National Book Award finalist in poetry <laughs> with your first book. Brain damage, baby. <laughs> Brain damage. I'm not joking. People think I'm joking. I mean, you know, I have friends. So the great thing about brain dam- damage is I have very kind of random uh, memory that's not linear, and I forget. Mm-hmm. So I've forgotten so much of my life. So I have dear old friends who have. I've been like, can you believe I started writing poetry? And they'll come up to me and be like, here's a poem you sent me when you were 14. I'm wow. like, what? Yeah. You know, and there's my handwriting. I don't remember any of it. Or here's a here's a poem you wrote when you were 25. I literally have no recollection. Um, there's a backstory to that too, but I'll come to that. But in any case, um, I started writing it because this poem, the one I just read, because I was sick right. and I was going crazy. I wanted to jump out of my skin. I couldn't leave the house for a long, long, long time, years. Not really, except to go to doctor's appointments. The light was too bright. The world was too bright. You know, I wore sunshades indoors, earplugs. It was just any kind of stimulation was too much. The the one thing I could do was think a little bit. The other thing about this poem, um, it is a poem about brain damage, which you can't tell, hmm. right? But uh, so I have really bad aphasia. If I talk for much longer in this interview, I'll start forgetting my language. And at the time, I mean, I've done a lot of speech language therapy to get back. But at the time, I was constantly making these hilarious mistakes hmm. when I would speak. And as an intellectual, I guess they fascinated me. You know, like right. the same way I would put milk in the oven, right? I was like, that's a beautiful sentence, milk in the oven. Mm-hmm. You put the milk in the oven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? that, I mean, that feels to me like, and I have, I only got through the book one time yeah. faster than I needed right. to get through right. it, but um, in the titular middle section where there's like a, forgive me if this is clumsy, but okay. like there's like a, a physical separation in the lines between like ob- like objects are pushed to the left sometimes mm-hmm. and like people stuff is pushed to the right oh, yeah, or vice yeah. versa. I know so which one you're talking about. It's like yeah. in the same way, you're like kind of dragging right. objects away right. from each other right. and creating, and I guess now that I'm thinking about it is they could be kind of funny, you know, in Absolutely. a way. Absolutely, it's funny. It's it's hysterical. But also just a really powerful separation of right. objects and people and, yeah. the, and then reintegrating them in a way mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that speaks to the... Uh, objectification of people's bodies, especially Absolutely. black bodies, you know, and is that related in any way? I mean, yes. I mean, I don't, I remember once calling my neurologist, Alice Flaherty, saying, I see patterns everywhere now. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's like, I'm oversaturated. Everywhere I go every day, I see patterns. And I was joking with her, I said, do you think I have a brain tumor on top of everything else that I've developed oh, a God. brain tumor? <laughs> and she laughed, and I thank God, because I was really starting to worry. And right. she said, no, it's you know, it's traumatic brain injury and you're noticing things that is around us, that are around us at all times and you're noticing it because of the hypersensitivity. Mm. Um, And I do think that, I mean, I do think this book is a book of brain damage. I really do. And the, especially Voyage of the Sable Venus, you know, because 
I was able to see patterns oh, wow, okay. and in titles, not necessarily in the artwork itself. Like this, this poem is about titles, right? you know, and that there was a relationship, or at least I create a relationship. You tell me, I mean, perhaps there was none, but I happen to think there was. Yeah. It's not a coincidence at all that, and, and I'm certainly not the first nor the last person to, to notice this, that most of the work dealing with women are called untitled or anonymous. Yeah. It's just not. You know, that, that's not, you know, there's a whole movement right now that I'm so excited about um, the hashtag say her name to speak about the kind of um, bodies of black women that are either disappeared or murdered. Yeah. You know, there's a reason why that movement is called say her name. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you know, the voyage of the sable Venus begins with the epigraph by Mahmoud Darwish. And he says, you know, it's from his poem, um, mural and says, here's your name, says the woman mm-hmm. and vanish in the corridor you know, anonymity and and gender, particularly with regards to women, is a long historical pattern of silence. So I started to recognize these things. I mean, I we all know them. We all see them all the time, every right. day. We, we are so much more aware than we pretend, um, I think. And the thing about brain damage, because it slowed down my processing, I couldn't just skip over them the way we do all the time. Well, they were, you're forced to reorganize your, your your visual field, exactly. right, in the world you live exactly. in. Exactly. And in, right. Voyage, in Voyage of the Sable Venus, it's partially like the 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 larger, the long, the full mm-hmm. piece, mm-hmm. and the and the like kind of view of history. But in each piece, like Ben was saying. You're doing like kind of micro arrangements mm-hmm. on the page mm-hmm. that kind right. of bring out meaning right. probably through seeing these patterns. I wanted to ask like in writing a piece like that and seeing finding those patterns and those like kind of like ability to just twist or turn or, you know, make mm-hmm. something leap off the page. Mm-hmm. How is that similar to when you're to these poems that are like kind of framing? It's a fantastic question. Like, as, as a writing process, like. Right. Well, one of the gifts of brain damage for me was that I used to get dizzy from reading, and I would mm. joke that like S's were the worst to come across in a word, because my brain would outline the whole letter. Oh man! Um, for the audience, I'm making the, the the sign of the S, so I would go backward and forward in a word before I could go on, or K's. You know, different the the, oh. the actual structure of the alphabet was dizzying. Mm. Um, after that, those symptoms calmed down, however, though, it became pleasurable. Mm-hmm. And so poetry was absolutely the perfect place for me to land, right? Because it's a somatic experience? Because or... it's it's somatic, but it's also, it's so structural. I mean, you asked about Sanskrit, right? I used to be a Sanskritist in another life. Um, it it allowed me to pay attention to language to, to all the way to the level of the letter, not just the word, hmm. and to the sound. I mean, you know, poetry is, I think for me, I know not for many people or not for everyone, it's an art of lyric. And that for me means music and and metric. And, and so um, I started to notice, before I even started Voyage, I wrote these other poems. And in writing them, I really noticed... Um, how powerful um, letters were, not just words, and mm-hmm. what you could do, and why why pick one word over another was not just the meaning, but also the sound, the structure, how it looked visually. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of languages are visual. Um, 
you know, how the word black looks to us. Right. For example, I, I, I put black a lot in a lot of my poems where I'll have the words, you know, sitting by itself on a line for a reason. Because, I mean, you can't say my son, I've noticed he's now seven. He says the word black. When he was young, he said the word black like this, black. Now he says the word black like this, black. Hmm. Right? There's no neutrality left. And... And, and that's a historical kind of conditioning and indoctrination we do with words and letters and sounds. And so I think um, that's how it showed up for me, was really paying attention to the point of letters, not just words. You're listening to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. To find out more, go to insertblancpress.net and click on the people at the top of the page. And now let's return to our conversation with Diana Arterian and Robin Cost Lewis. Yeah, so I'm writing a collection right now uh, that circles around the figure of Agrippina the Younger, who was um, the Emperor Nero's mother, the Emperor of Rome. And um, yeah, so this is a poem when... One of the things that's really interesting about her and her family was that uh, they traveled around with her father, Germanicus, um, on his military on his military um, travels, I guess. So this is in Antioch, and she's at the age of five. And so I should say one of the things that's really also really interesting to me about her is that um, historians generally villainize her um, because they cite her as the reason for Nero being as crazy and terrible and as he was and um you know the fall of rome <laughs> starting there um so in between all these kind of damning pieces of information that they either contrive or whatever um there are these huge voids in her narrative and so i was able to kind of play in the voids a little bit and so this is um and also just kind of consider who she was as a child or you know before she married Nero's father, who I think is actually not his father. But um, anyway, so this is her at the age of five um, in Antioch with, uh, this is on one of the military campaigns, but um, that's kind of neither here nor there. So this is Agrippina the Younger, 20 CE, Antioch. She sees the trail of gore and follows, finds a small roe deer, arrow almost through the neck, crouching she pushes it out, breaks the tip, slips the shaft from the deer as it kicks weakly. She lifts its head to her lap, strokes between the eyes, cradles the ear with her little hand, the ticks moving to the hairless arms, blood bumping out the hole, then less. Breaths more and more shallow. She hums as her mother does the baby. The deer's tongue slips quietly from between its teeth. The girl still pets as the wood and head grow cold. She eyes the large warm belly, wants to press, massage whatever out, build a fire beneath so the flesh will open and show, seize the fire, the fur, all blackly twisted, skin splitting, the pink fawn's eye on her. That's super good. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's really, I mean, one of the many things that's really interesting to me about Agrippina is how she's defined by motherhood. Um, villainized as a sexual entity um, and basically it was just her only method of having any kind of power at the time um, to 
have a son and make her make him her prosthetic. Also having a brother named Caligula, right. who <laughs> was rumored to have an incestuous relationship with. Right. But, but because of that was allowed to sit in the upper tiers of the games. Right. Mm-hmm. So, no one was put on money. And, right. um, and in what I've written, I've actually made it more of him being a sexual predator with all his sisters. Um, and... Uh, Drusilla, the youngest sister, particularly, I actually have a poem where Agrippina basically threatens him and says, if you keep doing this, I'm going to cut off your penis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, so I think some of the poems, they really focus on, on motherhood in that way, even as a very small kid. Um, And then kind of go outward. And so one of the things was that she marries um, this man who I think she's 15 and he's 50 or something. Um, and uh, he's very powerful. Her uncle, Tiberius, who was the emperor at the time, um, basically married her off to him. And um, he's, by all accounts, a terrible human. Um, and But they don't have a kid for 13 years. And... To me, that's clear that it's because he's sterile. But at the same time, she realizes it's the only way that she can escape mm-hmm. <laughs> or mm-hmm. have any kind of life because mm-hmm. she's also not in Rome at the time. She has to live outside of Rome. Um, and she and her husband hate each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, in, in the poems, I talk about how she goes to the slave market and finds a slave who looks like her husband and um, every time she has sex with her husband, has the slave come and have sex with her afterward. Um, and then really only through him that she's actually able to experience sexual pleasure because before that it was only, um, you know, either molestation or terrible sexual encounters with the husband. So it's really light. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's just been a really, a really um, interesting project in terms of, you know, history you know talking about history Mm -hmm. and myth and something Mm -hmm. where the only reason that I even got interested in her as a figure was because and I don't even remember where I heard it or read it the first time but there are also multiple versions of her death and one of the versions is that Nero had her cut open so that he could look at the womb that made him and so um, that image just fucking haunted me Mm -hmm. for years and I incorporated it in this really intense list poem of all these different kinds of violences that are incurred on women, um, through across space and time. And that was always the line that people would say, are you fucking kidding me? Mm -hmm. Really? And then, um, so I wrote a poem just about Agrippina, um, and Nero and kind of, you know, played on Wikipedia and gathered information. And then I brought it to a workshop that I had with, uh, Robin, Mm -hmm. And um, people really dug it, which was really nice. And I said, yeah, but then there's this other thing with a ship that's self-sinking that Nero had built. And then it sunk, but she survived. And there are all these people on the shore and they're Mm -hmm. clapping. (laughs) They said, you got to write this poem. So Mm -hmm. I had... And a collapsing bedroom as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so I had... uh, (laughs) And that ended up being a couple poems because it's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so I had about seven... And I, at the time, I thought, you know, I'm going to write this book about poems that happen in, or rather moments that happen in 30 seconds or less that seem really 
either remarkable or important or um, kind of on which important things turn, I guess. And then maybe playing with the elasticity of time, playing with the elasticity of time. Um, and the Agrippina poems would be this kind of lattice work with, for these other poems, whether they be historical or personal or whatever. And then I had the incredible honor of uh, working with Alice Notley uh, when I went to Vermont Studio Center and I gave her a sheaf of poems and I gave her, you know, my favorite Agrippina poems and then a few of the other 32nd poems. And she's kind of going, you know, we met and um, she's like, yeah, I don't really know about these, but I really like these Agrippina poems. And I think you need to write a whole book about yeah. her. Yeah. You know, who was she mm-hmm. and why, what would make her do what she did, yeah. you know, which was to some extent fucking murder so that her son could become the emperor. Yeah. Um, with little, at times, little regard for others. And I think, you know, I don't think that she had any sense how terrible it would get. You know, I, and one of the things, I mean, and I haven't even gotten this far in my manuscript, but there's this one point where um, Nero, Nero, so Nero married his stepsister, um, Octavia, and has a stepbrother, Britannicus, and there's a point where Agrippina is kind of working with Britannicus and is maybe going to try to have Nero overthrown and just have Britannicus take over. And um, he poisons Britannicus and he dies at the kitchen, at the rather the dining table. And I think at that point is when Agrippina just realizes, holy fuck, I've created this monster. I mean, it was the first kind of fratricide of that kind where it was so obvious. And um, so... Anyway, I'm in it deep. (laughs) I think she's such an interesting figure. And I think the fact that the, the historical accounts of her are so biased that it's, it just leaves a lot of room, um, for considering her, um, for considering her as a figure. Yeah. She exists as a representation, like all the Julio Claudians, like from that era, like her existence as a human is almost, you know, it being historical period, right. it's out of your reach, you know, yeah. but as a prominent member of the Julio Claudian family, it's extra super out. Like she exists extra super as a representation. Right. Absolutely. One thing I wanted to say to hark back to our initial conversation about myths, like there's myths of the gods and goddesses, but they're also historical myths. I also feel like history is a myth. Like what we tell ourselves that history is. It's really a myth, right? Right. And so you have these grand historical narratives, grand historical paintings, grand historical what have you. And then there are all these um, other kind of lives. I mean, it's just lived in the cracks, of course. I know that Agrippina was not living her life in a crack, but in some ways she was. And another myth that I think that your work, I love the Agrippina poems so much from the moment I first saw them. Just and just now the one you read, I don't think I've ever read, and that one is extraordinary. Yeah, thank you. Um, and partly why I love their interrogation of history as a myth is also you also are interrogating motherhood as a myth. Totally right. I mean, if Agrippina had been a man, we would not think her so evil. Right. So what? She killed somebody who didn't yep. in Rome. Give me a break. Everybody. I mean, come on. But because she was a mother and the way that she did it and all these other things, suddenly it's like this kill horror level that mm-hmm. we can't quite let in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's indicative of how much patriarchy kind of informs our understanding of history, right? That women are here to play a particular role. Right. 
And what I think your poems kind of um, ask us to reconsider is why is that? And and why, I remember I took a class in divinity school where we were talking about violence and women and people were having a cow, it's a lecture hall, mm-hmm. very huge. And I was like, well, since when can women be violent? I mean, we have every reason to be violent, yep. I would think, but you know, that's just sicko me. But you know, um, why why isn't that we, why is it that violence is much more acceptable if not normative in a male body? Right. Right? We don't think about, I mean, think about all those other people that she was surrounded by. Yep. They were killing people constantly. But Agrippina, oh God, she was the worst. And, and, you know, it's like, no, not really. And also, I think it's really interesting how you, these poems, excuse me, um, create a conversation that we need to have at all times about uh, how women have used their ability to reproduce for Mm. political liberation. Mm Mm-hmm. And how much we do not talk about that. Mm. Agrippina certainly was not the first, and she certainly is not the last. There, we, it happens 20 billion times a day, I'm sure, where people are reproducing in order to um, have a certain kind of mobility, whether right. that be class mobility or, you know, gender mobility even. I mean, it's a powerful thing to reproduce. I, I don't want to essentialize it, but I also, what I would like to do, however, and I think your poems do just that, is show what a political act reproduction is mm. and can be. Right. And often women are using their bodies and sacrificing their bodies <laughs> and their labor, right, for right. the next 20, 30 years, right, um, to um, use the birth of a person to kind of gain some kind of power or mobility and I think those poems do it beautifully thank you and it's it's interesting too because it's usually the opposite of what Mm -hmm. you know hardcore feminists Mm -hmm. like myself think of as associated with reproduction you know yeah um because nothing tethers you right like like giving birth to a living kid right and uh and then there's a part of me that thinks and nothing frees you right as much. I wouldn't say nothing, but it is also, and this is a narrative I think that we need to talk about more, right? I didn't, and this is also to answer questions about this book, right? I didn't write a book. I, I didn't I didn't have a child because I just knew it would kill me from writing a book. Like, I would never do that hmm. if I had a child. That's what I thought. But the I had the exact flip side experience of that. I wrote 30 poems in 30 days, the oh first God. 30 days of my son's life, to prove to myself that I would continue to write. Right. And I wrote this book while I was a single mother in New York City by myself with yeah. a three-year-old. Right. So I, I, I would like to encourage us all to be a little bit careful about what women can and cannot do. I, that is not to say that I don't think, hello, that I'm not saying that, um, that women's work and labor is not valued enough. I'm not saying that child care and all the discrepancies within the world around uh, parental leave and all that isn't heinous, I know. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that motherhood is as much a political, historical kind of spider web and jumping ground as any mm-hmm. other location and that we don't give it enough attention in that way and I think that your poems are doing just that the other thing I wanted to discuss about your poems and with regard to how it kind of interrogates the grand historical arc and the myth of history is it lets us again reconsider you know like ancient Rome is considered to be 
hours, I use that in some big, heavy air quotes, Mm -hmm. right? Our history, the roots of our history. And yet, you know, we're never taught it was a bloodbath that it was. Right. Ever. And yet, I love what you were just saying, you know, how (laughs) emperor after, after emperor after emperor killed so many people and usually their predecessor to get into position. And then I was also thinking about this paper I had to write for Professor Yazin in that classics course. I must have told you about it. What is it called when they put the sheet up and everybody who's on the sheet of paper has to be murdered? Oh, Oh, prescriptions. The prescriptions. Thank you. Um, It happened just before that poem takes place. Oh, really? Maybe 20 years before 40 BC, maybe a little bit more, maybe... I might be off uh, by it. That's right. There were several Maybe, levers, I know there. I know but... there were three of them, but in any case, right, mm-hmm. where you, this guy wants so badly to cleanse. This is where Cicero was assassinated, mm-hmm. during right. the same thing, during this prescription. He wants so badly to cleanse Rome, right, that he just has lists. I mean, this really beautiful historian talks about it as one of the first acts of um, kind of mass terrorism. Well, mm-hmm. he just have lists of names yeah. posted, and anybody on that list, hundreds of people over several weeks were murdered. And if you were a family member that harbored that person, Cicero you included, well. you were toast as well. Yeah, well, I mean, that and, was... Wait, what, wait, wait. And yeah. then they put, um, they put all the heads yep. on the rostrum. So right. bloodbath, complete bloodbath. But the way that we're talked about ancient Rome and ancient Greece, which is why I start the voyage of a sable Venus in that period yeah. with all these horrible statuettes of you know, female figures in horrible, horrible compromised positions, is that, sure, there is much to admire in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, without doubt. I love the ancient world. But it was also a complete bloodbath. Yeah. Right? And so to hear you talk about Agrippina in that way, to kind of, I don't need necessarily a recorrection of history. I'm not right. just I'm not just about, let's just tell the truth about history. I think history is deeper than truth and sicker than truth, or truth is sicker than history, I don't know. But I love those poems because it, it asks us to reconsider um, that our history actually did begin in a very sick way. And Western culture. To... And continues. I mean, right. And that's the other thing, right? I mean, you think about all the neoclassical gestures, our campus alone, University right. of Southern California, oh right? They're so uh, hellbent upon their neoclassical gestures mm-hmm. and their architecture where it's all around us. And yet we forget that the that the classicism is also kind of embroidered with blood. Right. And so I really appreciate your work for that. Or reason. soaked in it, I would so, say. Right. Embroidered is very nice of you. Yes. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I'm trying to be kind. <laughs> The whiteness of flies. <laughs> well, Diana Arterian and Robin Costlewis, thank you for joining us on The People. Thank, thank you, guys. So thank you much. so much. Yeah. I'm honored to be here. Yeah. You've been listening to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM. Our theme music is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. And when you're there, please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Or go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. And now we're going to go out with a song from Minneapolis-based musician Jesse Whitney. It's from his new album, Impossible Buildings. You can find out more about his music at www.jsswhtny.com. The name of the track is Immense Rooms Collapsing Inwards.